like a homeless, poor woman uh, with shabby clothes. And she placed herself on the steps leading to his townhouse. And when he came out of the townhouse and saw her looking so poor, so repugnant, he cursed her and he threatened her and he told her, Get off of my property. And she discovered his true character. God is very angry with us, and rightfully so, when we lift up our hands in prayers and look to him. But at the same time, look away from those who are truly in need. And I would like to challenge you this morning to think of the Lord Jesus Christ placing himself on your doorstep in many, many different ways to see really what is in you and what is in me. And we have just learned from the passage read to us by Nathan that sometimes he places himself on a road, on a road that leads to Jericho. And he presents himself in the form of a man who was beaten and robbed by thieves. The point of the parable that Nathan just read for us is at least twofold. One is that you really want to know who your neighbor is? Okay, your neighbor is anyone, anyone that God puts in your way who needs mercy. That's who your neighbor is, says Jesus. But really, he's also saying to the crafty lawyer, really, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, are you a neighbor? Are you neighborly? And the way we can discover whether or not we are true neighbors and we truly love our neighbors is how we respond to those who are in need. Well, we come this morning to the sixth installment of what in the world are we doing here? A question forcing us to re-examine the purpose of our existence as a church, as summarized in our Constitution. It's our mission statement, if you will. Mark helpfully reminded us of how local churches come into existence, and that is by the grace of God, and he reminded us why they come into existence, namely for the glory of God. That is the ultimate purpose. And so our statement says that we seek to glorify God, and Pastor Sam brought this to our attention by promoting his worship. We seek to glorify God, Jonathan brought to our attention, by equipping the saints. Pastor Keith brought to our attention that we glorify God by evangelizing the nations. And last Lord's Day morning, Pastor Rich showed us that we glorify God by planting churches. The one we planted is today celebrating its first year anniversary. And that's where two of our pastors are. And this morning I have come to show you that we also glorify God by ministering to the needy. Now, I want to say a word about three words. The three words that I want to just make reference to are love, grace, and mercy. 
I'm going to focus on mercy. But I want you to understand that it is, first and foremost, love and compassion which moves the people of God to be merciful. But sometimes we wrestle between the word grace and mercy. And I don't know if this will be helpful to you, but I think it's sometimes helpful. I think it's helpful to think of grace as that kindness of God, that favor of God which addresses our problem of sin, the, the presence of sin, the penalty of sin, the pollution of sin, the guilt of sin. But mercy is that kindness which addresses the misery of our sin, the misery that our sin has brought about. And so, as we think this morning about ministering to the needy, I'm going to suggest to you that we have to be merciful. But that mercifulness should be born out of a love, a love for God and a love for our fellow man, a love for our neighbor. And so, I'm not trying to be oblivious about love and grace. I'm simply pointing out that love and grace move us to be merciful. And so this morning, I want us to see six things about mercy. Mercy's mandate, mercy's model, mercy's motive, mercy's mission, mercy's method, and mercy's message. And I'm going to be, I hope, quite brief with each of these. So let me begin by showing you that the Word of God gives us a mandate to be merciful, not only as individual Christians, but as a collection of Christians which constitute a church. Heritage Baptist Church is required by God in His Word to be a merciful church, a church that out of its mercy ministers to the needy. And I want to show you from first the Old Testament and the New Testament, secondly, that we are to be merciful to those within the community of God's people, within the church, to the brotherhood. And we are to be merciful to those outside of the church, to strangers, to unbelievers. And you will see this from both the Old and the New Testament. So, let's very hastily do a survey of some passages in the Old Testament with regard to mercy. The first one I want you to turn to is Exodus chapter 23, and I'm going to help those of you who may want to use the Pew Bible just at least this one time. That's found on page 60. Three, or actually 64, page 64 in the Pew Bible, if that would be helpful to you. In Exodus 23, notice with me, please, verses 10 and 11. And I'm going to go very hastily through these. For six years you shall... Excuse me, verse 9 is what I really want to direct your attention to. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner 
for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then if you will notice verse 10 and 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Why? That the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave to the beasts of the fields may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Quickly go to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, notice verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of the land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip the vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. That would be someone outside of the covenant community. I am the Lord. We find the same thing in chapter 23, verse 22, but we will not look at that. Please turn quickly to chapter 25 and notice verse 35. Leviticus 25, 35. If your brother, and here we see how we're to minister first to our brother, becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. And then go to the book of Deuteronomy, please. And turn, please, to chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14. And I would draw your attention to verses 28 and 29. At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Notice chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release, is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor of your land. Psalm 41, 
Just notice verse 1 of Psalm 41. You get the impression that God cares about how His people treat the poor? Psalm 41, verse 1, Blessed is the man who considers the poor. And that word consider is an important word. It means to take some time to think about, maybe even to strategize how he might help. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. That is the person who considers the poor. And he goes on to speak of other blessings that he showers upon those who are compassionate toward the poor. Go to Proverbs chapter 14. These are Old Testament passages which teach that God wants us to care for the poor, whether they're our brothers or not. Proverbs 14, verse 31 Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And I think the hymn there really should be capitalized. I believe the reference is to God, because it's the opposite. If we treat poor people in an oppressive way, we are insulting their maker. If we treat poor people in a gracious way, we are honoring their maker. Chapter 19, verse 17. Proverbs 19.17 Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and He, the Lord, will repay him for his deed. And then just two more passages. Isaiah chapter 1. And I'm only going to spot read from this first chapter. I just want you to feel the burden of God Himself the holy frustration of God Himself. He's crying out from the beginning of this chapter about his, the sinfulness of His unfaithful people. You feel it in verse 4. Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And then when you come to verses 6 and 7, he describes the national depravity of Israel as a sickness that goes from the sole of the foot to the top of the head. And then he begins in verse 11 to complain to them and say, I don't want your sacrifices. What is it to me? I'm tired of it. It's repulsive to me. It's obnoxious to me. And in verse 15, he says, Don't even waste your time praying to me. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen to you. Now one would wonder, why? Why is God so troubled with these people? What is it they have done? Well, listen, he tells them what to do, and that gives you a clear understanding. He says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Basically, he's saying, would you just be cleansed and converted? You need to be totally changed. And then he describes what happens to people who are truly converted. In verse 17, he says, Seek justice, 
correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, lead the widow's cause. Do you think God cares about poor people? Do you think God cares about people who are oppressed? Does God really have a peculiar compassion for widows and for the fatherless? Does God want His people to share His heart? One more passage, and then our survey of the Old Testament is completed. Go to chapter 58. This is more familiar. Very similar, however, to God's complaint in chapter 1. Isaiah 58, he tells the prophet that he needs to cry out against the sins of the people and to declare their transgression. In verse 3, he says, They seek me daily. This apostate, wicked, vile, impenitent nation prays to me. Of course they pray to me because they're desperate and they need help and they want deliverance. And in verse 3, you hear them saying to God, God, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? God, we're praying to you and you're not answering our prayers. What's going on? And God says, I'll tell you what's going on. And they said, by the way, remember, we've been fasting. He said, yeah, you've been fasting. And he said, let me tell you what your fast is like. The latter part of verse 3, he says, you oppress all your workers. And then in verse 6, he says, let me tell you the kind of fast that I will look upon with favor. And God is saying, in essence, to his people, do you, do you really want me to respond to your prayers and your fasting? Okay, let me tell you what you've got to do. Here's what you have to do. I promise that if you fast in the way that I'm about to describe biblical fasting, I will hear your prayers. Here's what you not, need to do. Uh, verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then... Then you shall, your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Look at verse 9. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. And he goes on in verse 10 to speak of pouring yourself out to the hungry and satisfying the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise. Dear people, do you know that the thunderings of the prophets later on, be further beyond Isaiah, in many respects, the judgments that God was threatening soon to come were due to their lack of compassion for the poor and the oppressed and the afflicted. God hates hard-heartedness. God's Word requires that His people be merciful to the needy. It's a mandate. And I've given you just these passages. I could have shown you 20 or 30 more from the Old Testament. Very quickly, we need to survey a few in the New Testament, not nearly as many. Galatians. Would you go to Galatians chapter 6? In here, we're helped in terms of order and priority. Here we are told 
that we are first to show compassion to the brotherhood, to our brothers, to our sisters. Galatians 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially, that's a key word, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So who are we to minister mercy to, according to Galatians 6.10? Everyone who is needy that we have an opportunity to help. But let's be sure, says Paul, that we first take care of the household of faith. But you see, some would say, well, I, I know that as Christians and as churches we should take care of our own people, but that's it. That's it. No, that isn't it. Because this text says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. If you go back just to chapter 2 and notice verse 10 there, Paul is talking about a commission he had received from Peter and James and John. And he says, only they asked us, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Then if you will go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and following, here's some instruction for those who are rich. And remember, uh, we're all rich in comparison to most of the world and to many people in our own community. 1 Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them, Paul says to Timothy, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Those are two possible dangers when God makes people wealthy. But on God. And now notice, he doesn't say, get rid of all of your riches and live like a poor person. No. He says, use these riches. He says, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't feel guilty about God making you prosperous. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And then he talks about how that uh, will be rewarded in the day of judgment. And then if you'll go just quickly to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16. Hebrews 13 verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Have you thought of your opportunity to be merciful as a way to offer a sacrifice to God? The writer to the Hebrews speaks of it as a sacrifice. And now I bring you to two very familiar passages. One is James chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. James 2, 13. He says, For judgment is without mercy on the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without 
giving Him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is here calling us to help those who are in need and who have very practical needs. They're, they're not properly clothed. They're not properly sheltered. They're cold. They need to be made warm. They're hungry. They need to be given food. James says, do it. And then finally, well, not quite, almost, I want you to see First John chapter 3, verse 17. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The reason I said finally is because that's all I was going to show. And then even this morning I thought, you know, there's a passage that I came across this week and it so uh, convicted me. And I was talking to Dave McClellan about this last night. And so I just ask you to notice with me one final passage. It's Luke 14. Something Jesus said that we are to do. And after I read this, I'm going to ask you, when is the last time you did this? And I ask myself the same question. Be really honest about this. I know he's talking to um, a ruler. We learn who about that in verse 1. And he's already taught a parable But then in verse 12, he says to this man at whose home he was enjoying a meal, he said to the man, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. First question is, does this sound like a suggestion or a command? Honestly, is Jesus saying, you know, here's an idea. Just try it sometime if you like. Don't feel obligated to do it. Um, Some people enjoy it, but you certainly aren't obligated to do this. Why don't you think about sometime having a meal for poor people, for people who are invalid, people that you know could in no way pay back the favor? No, he's saying, he says to that man, now if he says it to that man, who's probably not even a Christian, not a true believer, surely this is true for those of us who know God's grace. And he is commanding us to do this. And my second question is, and I I just feel nothing but guilt when I ask myself this question and and then answer it. When is the last time you had a meal in your home for only poor people 
and crippled people and lame people. And have any of you ever, ever purposely invited blind people to your home for a meal? So we don't have any blind people in our community, really. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us? I can only tell you what's wrong with me. I don't have the kind of compassion that moves my heart to be as merciful as it ought to be. That's my problem. That's what's wrong with me. So that's just a word about mercy's mandate. Now I'm going to really go fast with regard to these other five things. Mercy's model. Well, who do you think best models what mercy should look like? The answer is God. God the Father, and especially God the Son. Those two especially. In what regard do they model mercy? Well, in this regard, the mercy of God is always free. That is to say, God doesn't come to fallen, sinful, broken creatures and say, if you will do this for me, I will be merciful to you. God doesn't wait for people to beg before He shows mercy. God doesn't look at people in misery and say what we are prone to say. Those people are in that kind of trouble because of the way they've been living. They brought all those problems on themselves. Look what drug addiction does. You destroyed your life, my friend, with your meth. You destroyed your life. We have that tendency. We are much like the lawyer who tried to trap Jesus. Well, who really is my neighbor? And Jesus traps him. And he sets before him a standard. He thinks he keeps the second commandment to love his neighbor as himself. And he shows him what that looks like. And according to our Savior, mercy is given and shown toward the undeserving and even to the ill-deserving. God doesn't make people fill out an application form. God's mercy doesn't come with conditions. Now listen to me carefully. I do believe that once mercy is extended to people who are in misery and we cultivate some kind of a relationship which is designed to, to help restore them, conditions do have to come into play. Even though mercy doesn't come with conditions, it, if it is to continue, there may be some conditions that have to be set up. We may need to help people say, you can't keep not working. You've got to get a job. You've got to quit these drugs. You need to get some education and some training, and I'm going to help you do that. But I'm not going to supplement just pure laziness and irresponsibility on your part. But we don't go to people first and say, now if you're willing to do this, 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 and this, then I'm going to help you. It's interesting. Liberals don't make you do anything, and conservatives have a list of things that you have to do. And I'm a conservative, and expect to die a conservative. But God doesn't come to us and show us mercy because somehow we've merited it. Somehow we've 
met the conditions of mercy. And so our mercy must be like God's mercy, which is free and without conditions until at least later on. What about mercy's motive? We've seen the mandate. We've seen the model. Now the motive. What is the motive? Well, I think I've already answered this question. But I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to ask you to turn to a passage of Scripture. and Notice with me Matthew chapter 15. What is the ultimate motive for mercy? Well, of course it is for the glory of God. But that's not exactly what I'm thinking about for this moment. I'm saying, what is it in your heart and in your soul that has to move you to be merciful toward people who are in misery? And I think I answered that at the beginning. It is love. It is the love of God. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Giving His Son was very, very merciful. What moved God to be merciful? Love. Love is the ultimate motive. And that's why I confessed a moment ago that the reason I don't have those kinds of people to my home is because I really just don't have enough love for them. And I'm ashamed of that. And I want to be helped with that. Some people would say, well, you know, it's just, it's just love for their souls. And I'm going to submit to you right now that this mercy that we show toward people who are in misery needs to be holistic. We can't just love their souls. We have to care about their bodies. We have to care about their marriages. We have to care about their unemployment. We have to care about their disease. We have to care about whatever form of misery sin has brought into their lives. We care about the whole person because God made the whole person and God's redemption goes to the whole person. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But right now I want to show you what moved Jesus on one occasion. In verse 32... Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Why? Why, Jesus? What, what, what moves your heart? Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Now, there's not a little parenthesis that follows and says, so why don't I do a miracle proving that I'm God and will get them saved? Is it because he didn't have that desire? No, I'm sure that was part of our Savior's motive. But here's a case where he showed mercy to 4,000 people, at least just men. There were probably more. How many of those people were fed that day? How many of them became disciples? Was his only concern for their soul? What does the text say? My text says that Jesus felt compassion for them because they had been with him for three days already and that they were hungry and he was concerned, he was worried, if I may just use that expression, not in a sinful kind of worry like ours. I can't let them go home under these circumstances, fellas. If I do, they're so weak right now because they've been hanging on my word that some of them are simply going to faint. They're going to fall over. They're not going to make it. They don't have strength. I care about those kinds of things. That's what the Bible says. Jesus had compassion on them. And I'm simply saying to us, dear people, 
Mercy needs to be motivated by compassion. You've seen the mandate. You've seen the model. And now you see the motive. And now would you notice with me the mission? What is the mission of mercy? What, what is mercy of going after? What is its goal? Well, it is the restoration of the whole person. And I want to stress that again. It's soul and body. I alluded to it just a moment ago. Wherever the ravages of sin have come, mercy goes with its healing. And many times mercy does begin with the body. And it begins with the body with a view to the soul. But even after mercy has worked through the body to the soul, it may come back to the body because it cares about the whole person. It wants to see healing, as I've said, wherever sin has wreaked its havoc. God's redemption is holistic. And some of you think, that sounds like liberalism to me. That sounds like the slippery slopes to me. Caring about those kinds of things. That's what liberals care about. No, that's what God cares about. God cares about our bodies. If you don't believe that, then read Romans 8 and see what His final intention is with regard to redemption. He's going to restore this whole humanity, soul and body. We're going to have glorified bodies. Because God knows that sin has wrought havoc in our bodies. And we should care about it. In that sense, medicine is redemptive. And so, our mercy should be holistic. We do care about the whole person. God's redemption is holistic. How, how wide and holistic is God's redemptive purposes? Well, for one thing, it's cosmic. What do you mean? I mean God cares about the universe. I mean God is going to recreate the earth. It's His redemptive purposes are psychic. He cares about the soul and the mind, which has been fragmented because of sin. And we should care about people's minds and what has happened to their minds. And God's redemption is somatic. That is, it, it cares about the body. And so, our mission is... Holistic and like that wonderful Christmas hymn that we sing, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. That's how far God's grace intends to go and to restore. And I'm just suggesting to you, dear people, brothers and sisters, that our mission is to see miserable people made whole. And we and it's not just to help them feel better in their sinfulness. Please don't misunderstand me. Ultimately, our goal is to see them saved. We're not giving them food just to give them food. We're giving them food to show the love of God so that we can speak to them about the love of God, so that they can be made right with God, so that they can begin to put their lives together, so that at the end of life, even though it will never be put together, God will put it all together, soul and body. But we care about the whole person. That's what mercy's mission is. And what is mercy's method? It is deed and word. Deed and word. I read to you 1 John 3.18. So then he says, brothers, let us not love in word only, but let us love in 
word or in deed and truth. And it's interesting, that's the order. Let us love in deed and truth. No, that's wrong, John. You shouldn't have said that. We also love people first in word, then in deed. Word and deed, it's always the word first. What we do is get them saved, then we'll try to help them out with their lives. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are to love people in deed and in word. And that's why so often Jesus ministered to people's physical needs before he presented to them the gospel. And when the two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus, and they were talking to Jesus and didn't even realize they were talking to Jesus, and they said, don't you know what, what's happened, why we're so distressed and why we're so troubled? We had such high hopes for this Jesus of Nazareth. Didn't you know that he was a man, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in that order. So what is our method to restore people and to help people who are in a condition of misery? It's deed and word. And it's not, I don't mean to say that it can't be word and deed. But I do mean to say it, must, it doesn't have to be word and deed. It can be deed and word. And the fact of the matter is, these two things should never be separated. When we minister to people in deed, it's with a view to getting the word to them. When we minister the word to people, we care about their condition and we show love to their condition. You see somebody half dead and dying, you don't want to just go up to them and say, Look, I know you're shivering and I know you're hungry and I know you, don't have, you haven't had anything to eat, but I've got to share the gospel with you first and, and maybe we can find a sweater or something for you. No, you say, Come with me. You're so cold. Could you come to my home? We'll fix a meal for you. And while you're eating it, we're going to tell you about the love of God. What kind of a person could claim that they really love people, people who are in misery, who only want to bring to them the Word? I'm going to say it again. Liberals, they don't have a Word. All they have is a deed. Fundamentalists don't have much of a deed. All they have is a Word. We need to minister to people in deed and in word. See why I had to preempt the last song? This is really, really discouraging. Not that. Not the way the service went. The way I've prepared. Too much. What do I do? Well, I'm going to skip the message. The message is the gospel. And I'm just going to come to my conclusion. You'll have to forgive me. But if you don't forgive me, you'd really have to forgive me. <laughs> and I don't want you to have to forgive me that way. What's this all come down to for Heritage Baptist Church? I'll tell you what it comes down to. is We've got to become more merciful, individually and corporately. It's in our Constitution, but the reason it's in our Constitution is because it's in our Bibles. We must each grow in this virtue, and we must grow corporately in this virtue. We need to learn how to consider the needy. <clears throat> we need to consider the needy in our church. When's the last time you looked at the church directory and just thought through who are the needy people? What about the elderly? You really think everything's going great for the elderly here? Do you know what some of their struggles are? What about the widows in our church? We've got several widows in our church. Do you think they're lonely? When's the last time you paid a visit to a widow? I know a few people who pay visits to the widows. 
What about the singles? Do you think they don't have some special struggles? What about the single moms trying to go it all on their own and raise their children without godly male influence? What about the children who don't have a godly father in their life? Consider, consider, please consider. Consider the community. I'd like to challenge our care groups to think about whether or not there might be a project that could have a mercy a mercy goal in our community. What about the world? Some practical suggestions. Think through the directory, as I said. Become a volunteer in some of the community social organizations. Oh, that's not, that's not biblical. That's not Christian. Really. We've got some organizations in our community that are so Bible-based, it's, it's, it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. If you don't know what they what the counselors teach pregnant women who are contemplating abortion at CareNet, you need to go find out. You will be shocked. It's the gospel. Mentor Kids Kentucky is all about evangelism. Well, that's a parachurch organization. Friends for Sinners is a Christian approach to rehab. That's a parachurch. Of course it's a parachurch. You know why? Because the church isn't doing it. And if the church doesn't do it, God finds another way to do it. Common grace takes over. So whenever you're ready to invest a quarter of a million dollars to buy an ultrasound machine so that Heritage Baptist Church can minister to a pregnant women who are contemplating abortion, please start that ministry, okay? But until you start it, would it be okay if we utilize the one that other Christians have started? Ladies, please go and volunteer to be a counselor. Why should the counseling be less theologically sound than it could be? Please take on a mentee. We have mentor kids heritage. We have 14 mentors. And it's all about cultivating relationships and sharing the gospel with these boys and girls. Please go down to friend of sinners and watch them study the Bible every week. Guys that are looking to God to be delivered from the power of alcohol. Do something as a family. How about adopting a poor family as a family? Do something as a care group, I've already said. Let's do something as a church. Let's adopt a block of people somewhere in Owensboro. Let's set some money aside sacrificially. Let's, let's see how much we're willing to give to help people who are needy. Everyone can do something. Elderly people can pray and give. Singles can serve. Children can collect coins. No one in our church is so impoverished that they can't help anyone else. Pray for a heart of mercy. Did you know that mercy is a communicable attribute? What's that mean? That's just big talk for it's one of those things God wants us to be like him about. He doesn't ever want us to have omnipresence. He doesn't ever want us to have omniscience. And we couldn't. It's impossible. But he does want us to be loving Truthful, kind, patient, merciful. You know, God kind of likes it when we ask Him to make us like Him. You say, well, I think I have an ounce of this, but I need more. How do I get more? Go back to the Gospel. Go back to the Gospel and see what a wretch you were before you were saved and see how merciful God was to you. And the more you see of the glory of God in the Gospel, the more merciful you will become. Brothers and sisters, 
Let me say this to you in closing. We live in Jerusalem, and we must make many trips to Jericho, and it's dangerous. It includes a thousand calls to deny ourselves and to love others. And you know what? You can't get to Jericho without going through Haiti. You can't get to Jericho without going through Haiti. And you know what else? You can't get to Jericho without going through the west end of Owensboro. And if you can, then you're just like the priest and the Levite. You're just circumventing it on purpose. There's a lot of places you can't get to Jericho without going through. But if you get on this Jericho road and open your eyes, you're going to see the poor, the homeless, the broken, the cold, the widows, the orphans, the divorced, the lonely, the immoral, the single moms, the mentally disturbed, the invalid, the oppressed, the unemployed, the sick, the victims of earthquake, the drug addicted, the illiterate, the imprisoned, and on and on it goes in Owensboro, Kentucky. And to get through Jericho, to Jericho, you're either going to have to walk around these people or step over these people or step on them. Some of them are black. Some of them are Asian. Some of them are Hispanics. Some of them are liberals. Some of them are homosexuals. And a lot of them are lazy. And that's part of their misery. And you know what lazy people need? Grace. Can we get beyond looking at people who've messed up their lives and just say, what if God looked at us and said, well, did they mess up their lives, sir? Is it their fault or not? If it's their fault, I'm not going to help them. What if he did? Of course they messed up their lives. Of course they've learned how to milk the system. That's why they need to get saved. That's why they need love. That's why you need to repent of your prejudice, your pride, your cold-heartedness. Will you become God-like? Will you become Christ-like? If God gives you grace, you will stop and administer mercy to such people. They're not all your brothers. I've already made that clear. But you know what they are? They're all your neighbors. That's what Jesus said. And after you have lovingly served them with a view to their salvation, and someone says, wow, that must have been a heavy burden. You will humbly look at your friend and say, far from it. He ain't heavy. He's my neighbor. And I conclude finally with this, and I do ask you to forgive me for going too long, but I want you to hear what Robert Murray McShane said in one of his sermons 
on the Matthew 25 passage, which we can't look at, but did you know it's where Jesus said, uh, welcome into my kingdom, because when I was sick, you visited me, and when I was in prison, you visited me, and when I was unclothed, you gave me clothing, and so forth. And they said, when did we ever do this? And he said, and as much as, as, much as you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. McShane preached on that, and listen how he concluded his sermon. And it's with this that I conclude. And I, I wonder if he would say this to us. I fear there are some Christians among you to whom Christ can say no such thing. Come, thou blessed, inherit the kingdom. Your haughty dwelling rises in the midst of thousands who have scarce a fire to warm themselves at and have but little clothing to keep out the biting frost. And yet, you never darken their door. You heave a sigh, perhaps at a distance, but you do not visit them. Ah, my dear friend, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in that great day. I fear there are many hearing me who may know now well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly. For I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have helped us to understand to some extent that as a church, it is our biblical duty and privilege to minister to the needy. And we thank you that you are the great model of ministering to the needy. And we thank you that you give the motive of love. Oh Lord, help us. We need to change all of us in here, every single one of us needs to repent, starting with me, to repent of our lack of love for people, of our worldliness, of our selfishness, of our ability to walk around and to step over needy people. Help us to understand that everyone who is miserable who comes within the orbit of our influence is our neighbor. And it's our opportunity to be godlike. Please help us. Help us to grow in this grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>